Holodeck 3 program is reinstated. Open sesame! Commander Klingon vessel. We are energizing transport of him. Now. Welcome to Star Trek from the Holodeck, the Discovery Edition. Yes, indeed. I am Michael Flores, your host, your captain, your Lorca, your lover, your Saru. <laughs> Whatever you want me to be, I will be that for you. And at the helm in the studio with me is David Sabal. Hello, Dave. I don't know if you want to be Lorca. <laughs> Maybe Saru. Saru. Saru would. Uh, Saru came out really well this episode, I have to say. I, I don't want to be eaten, though. <laughs> I don't want to be eaten. I will not be somebody's. Uh, you know, cultural delicacy dish. Is, is your is your ganglia shaking? Yes. It shakes a lot, especially <laughs> around Tilly. <laughs> of course, of course. All right. So today we're gonna be breaking down Star Trek Discovery season one, episode thirteen. What's past is prologue. And I do in fact love the poetry behind that title. <laughs> The, the, the titles of the that they've been giving all the episodes do have been really good. Yeah, they they really do add something. Adding all the titles have added something to the show. I'm a stickler for that, and I think I said that a few shows back. I'm definitely a stickler for those poetic titles where there is a much deeper meaning. So when there's some for some actual thought into putting together your titles, I feel like that's a reflection of the amount of thought and effort that went into the episode itself. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. So the, this episode was directed by Altonde Asusanami. <laughs> Hope you said that right. You said it better than I, I, I did. I don't know if that's English or, or Filipino or Klingon. I'm not quite <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, written by uh, Ted Sullivan. That's a little simpler. Yes. Thank you. White males. I can definitely pronounce their <laughs> names. Very easy. <laughs> Lorca plans to move forward with a coup against the Emperor, propelling Burnham to make a quick decision to save not only herself, but the crew of the USS Discovery. Now, this was an action-packed episode with a cinematic flair. Oh, dude, yeah. I mean, it felt like I was watching a Star Trek film. Had a bit of the science fiction babble, the sci-fi babble mixed with intense sequence of action, which I like that I like that mixture. I think we can go hardcore techno babble with a little bit of action, right? Oh, yeah, wrong absolutely. With that. This is what this is what Star Trek's all about. I mean, when you take a look at like the past movies, the the good movies of Star Trek, they mix their techno babble with the action, and it's it's something that I've I have never seen a lot of sci fi shows and movies try to uh, duplicate, but they can't do it like Star Trek can. No. And this is making me a little afraid. There is something that I feel could go terribly wrong with the way they're doing the Star Trek Discovery series. This is not a negative about the show. This is a potential pitfall that the Star Trek franchise might end up falling into. Because this is shot in such a way that it has that cinematic flair. 
It looks a lot like a movie. It feels like a movie. It's written a lot like a movie. Yes, it has the individual act structure that you need to have per episode, but as a whole, it feels like an ongoing film with each subsequent episode being simply a sequel. Is this going to create issues moving forward with Star Trek movies? Because Star Trek movies have always been the reprieve from the normal. It's been an epic occasion because, okay, we got the budget, we got the big ships, we got this so-and-so actor here doing this, we got these types of villains, and Star Trek Discovery is doing all those things. They're satisfying not only the Star Trek hunger-craved fans, but also those of us who miss the movies. Yeah, Do you, do you mean, think it's going to end up hurting the the franchise in the long run because is the movie still going to be a special occasion, Dave? That's the thing, man. I mean, like nowadays, I uh, I'm I'm starting to think like what you're you're talking about, where basically when when a Star Trek movie comes out, it was awesome. It was gangbusters. It was like, you know, everyone got hyped about it and and high about it as well. Exactly. And then like nowadays, especially with how uh streaming uh television is going and the quality that it's actually increasing, it's catching up to that cinema uh, right. cinema quality. Exactly. And it's like going to the theaters now is kind of like they have to they have to find something to actually make going to theaters really special. Yeah. And, and you know, you valid point dave maybe this isn't just a star trek problem maybe this is a a television film industry problem where we're getting a lot of these high-end high production style shows nowadays on television that it's maybe reducing the urgency to go buy that movie ticket for 13 dollars a pop and if you think about it too i mean like look how much look how much storytelling we can get out of like a series that spans like how many episodes is Discovery going for right now? It's going for I believe I want to say fifteen episodes. Fifteen episodes. So fifteen episodes worth of Discovery, and you're getting this excellent storytelling and this, and it's incredibly well paced, and it doesn't feel like it's dragging. And when I go to movies nowadays, it seems like movies have to be really fast, and like the storytelling has to be really sparse, and it's like it goes back to like. Uh, discussions me and you have had on other shows about like why nowadays like comic book movies are just not a thing anymore. It's there's there's nothing special about them, and it it's partly because the storytelling in those comic book movies are so shallow, it doesn't make it feel special. And it, you know what? It's definitely worthy of a deeper discussion for sure. I don't feel like we have time for it in this particular show. However, moving forward, that may be something that you and I want to put on the docket for one of our Patreon shows. It would be bad. I talking about the pros and cons of this era of television and the high production value and what it means for the future movies. Absolutely. Because like in regards to Star Trek, it's kind of like, okay, how do you, how do you actually tell that? We, I think me and you can both agree that the story uh, and the writing for Discovery could not be told in a film. I don't think it could because um, of so much that so much that they're trying yeah. to actually tell. Yeah, you know, no, you're right with the, with the deep development that we're getting on many of our characters. Absolutely, and if they were to attempt, if they were to attempt it, 
it would be more of a even more of a focus on a tighter focus on Burnham or our or our subsequent leads. Yeah, I think it, we, we would, would miss out on other characters. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, so let's move into our discussion with the uh, with this episode this week. All right, so what do we know so far, Dave? Lorca <laughs> is dead. We yes. finally got to witness Michelle Yeoh and all her glory as a martial arts expert. That's something <laughs> that cool. Something I've been waiting for because I, I am a huge Asian film cinema buff. I love the Asian cinema. I, I mean, ever since the early nineties, I've been all about it, especially those martial art films. Why I love the, 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 um, I love the idea of putting Michelle Yeoh in this show. And I was hoping they utilized that because a lot of people may not realize that her background is martial arts. When she started to make her U S breakout become that breakout international star she was promoted in the mid 90s as the female jackie chan yes i remember when her first movie american well movie that came into the states that's what was all over it that's what hit all the trades everybody was talking about it the interwebs everything it was the female jackie chan and I was one of those individuals that was sold on it and said, hey, I love Jackie Chan. Not a big fan of Jackie Chan's American work, but his his Asian international films signed me up for every one of those. Oh, absolutely. I'm I'm also in that boat. I'm I'm even more so because I'm because you're Asian. I'm Asian. Is, and, is that racist? And I grew that? up I grew up on that Hong Kong, Hong Kong uh, yeah. film uh, film scene and everything else. So the the fact that. Michelle Yeoh was uh, was cast in a Star Trek show. I was in the back of my mind. I'm like, going, are they going to have her fight? Because I, I want to see her fight. Now she, uh, now she is getting up there in age and oh, everything. Come on, come on. No, she is. She is. I mean, the last. I think the last great action Asians. Movie, we already know Asians don't age the same way as the rest of the human race. Yeah, but we we move a little slower. <laughs> I don't know. Your brother's almost seventy, and he and he and he's like and he moves like a forty year old. So, <laughs> all right. So I'm glad you and I are on the same page with her. It was fun to see her yeah. be able to move around. Yes, it wasn't the walking on walls that she's done in the <laughs> like past. Crouching tiger, hidden dragon, and stuff like that. Right. I, so. Yes, they didn't. They didn't go all crazy, which I would have also. If they did that, though, it would have felt very different than Star Trek. They kind of would have taken us out, I think, of the story. So they, it was more subtle, but it was nice knowing that that was probably her doing a lot of that stuff. Oh, absolutely, no, no doubt that was probably did you all her? Did you notice there was a very distinct style to her fighting as well, very yes. different than everyone else, and that's why I got excited. And I'm going to delve into the stunt aspects. I think on our next show when I have time to research it, because I want to find out how much she actually did on her own and how much. Uh, she ended up relying on, say, the stunt coordinator. And I know sometimes they don't even have a decision. A lot of times with American television, specifically, you know, lower budget things, which CBS All Access isn't ABC. It isn't the CBS platform flagship network. They're probably going to have diff slightly different rules when it comes to budget and insurance. A lot of times actors, even if they're able, aren't allowed Due to insurance reasons, they don't want to run the risk of them getting hurt. And then there's a lawsuit and then they lose their star. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's a big thing. Yeah. So I'm going to do some research and I'm going to find out whether or not she was all up in it, if that was in fact her or not. 
Also this week, Saru has fallen into the position of captain, and he's doing a damn good job, David. Dude, that monologue he gave was cool. That's captain's worthy. It's Star Trek-esque. It's Star Trek-esque. And I was very happy to see that, especially because he's a character that has that has that struggles with self-esteem and his worthiness uh, because of being a prey species. And specifically, if you read the prequel, uh, the prequel novel as well, they delve into that inferiority complex that he has and the insecurities and the self-esteem issues. And they delved into it a bit with the uh with uh, earlier episodes but it was nice to see him kind of get his his due as well so we're going to get into that as well and you know what made that really special you do realize if they continue that trend of saru taking that captain's battle uh, yep. he's going to be the first alien he's dude to ever I, be a captain i'm going to call it now but let's save that for later in the show after our first break yeah but yes i i it were again once again dave you and i are on the exact same page All right. Discovery and her crew is back in the Alpha Quadrant, but they overshot by nine months and the Klingons have won the war. How the fuck? Okay. How does this affect Star Trek canon? That's the first question I had. Does this mess up anything that has been established as canon? Or is this an area that's been kind of shrouded in darkness and mystery that they can kind of stretch their legs a bit in this area is it is there room to explore this type of scenario (laughs) and how is it going to be fixed or are they just going to go with it that this actually happened in the prime universe that's what i was like trying to figure out by the end of it going did did they just change history yeah again (laughs) well i guess we're gonna find out i i feel like there's not enough information yet but we're gonna delve into that a little bit deeper as well after our first break these are all things we're going to get into. Uh, a lot has transpired in, in in just a few short episodes. Oh, yeah. And we've got, I believe, two episodes remaining. But before yes. we continue, there there is a bit of news that I'd like to get into pertaining to Trek's relevance and viewership. Okay, now this article is taken from Forbes.com. And they do a lot of analysis into TV and movies pertaining to the money aspect which would make sense. We're dealing with Forbes here. And the specific article has more to do with the, the, uh, the battle between Hulu, Netflix, and Amazon. And it goes into a discussion about which one's growing faster. And they talk about Hulu having like a 42% increase over the past two years. And then they bring in CBS All Access into the equation. And it may raise some eyebrows, David. And this actually made me feel good about the show, okay? About what's happening and in, in the in the potential the potential future of Star Trek Discovery and Star Trek as a whole because it is tracking phenomenal on social media, okay? And there's some pros and there's some cons with yeah. that, and we're gonna get into it right now, okay? All right, so Forbes.com, Hulu is gaining on Netflix, but Star Trek Discovery is unstoppable. Is an unstoppable monster, they say. So what's interested me, though, is the Star Trek Discovery demand expressions, this article says, or better known as the number of people talking about a show. According to Parent Analytics video below, Star Trek Discovery has more than 53 million people 
talking about it in the United States. And this is what I honestly think Star Trek needed. 53 million people are talking about Star Trek Discovery, and then they compare it to The Walking Dead, which is around 46 million. Netflix's Stranger Things also has a staggering 33 million. All right. So for a show like coming from CBS All Access, which is a a digital streaming platform that doesn't benefit necessarily from the success from the successes of its main sister channel, I would call it CBS, the network itself, 53 million people. Now, one might say, well, does that mean there's 53 million subscribers to CBS All Access? Because that's fucking huge. That's huge. But I don't think it means no. that. It, it means that there's probably like 5 million subscribers and the rest of y'all motherfuckers are pirating this shit. Because <laughs> no, there's no way. If there's CBS no way. All Access had 53 million subscribers, we would be hearing about it. They would be pounding their chest. They'd be, you know, crowing like roosters saying, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Look at us. And I haven't heard anything from the financial sector. In fact, this is the first article I've read that goes into the 53 million aspect. Now, just because they're not getting those subscribers, I feel like that the fact that there's 53 million people talking about it is still a good thing. Yes. That's nothing, that's nothing to frown at or shrug off. You want people talking about your show. And also take into account, Dave, that this is, yes, 53 million people in the United States as well. So some people may say, well, what about the Space Channel in Canada? What about the Netflix viewers uh, across the world because in that's how ev- Europe, yeah. that's how 75 80% of the rest of the audience watches the show it's only on CBS all access here in the US so if there's 53 million people talking about this just in the United States david then what does that mean for the entire bulk sum of individuals talking about this show across the world i like this I like i'm this. happy about it because even if there is some naysayers out there, it seems like a lot of people are being won over. There are complaints, and there's always going to be complaints. That's just what people do. But to see that the show has 53 million people talking about it, that's a win. Oh, yeah. And that's the type of win you do brag about. Wouldn't you agree, Dave? No, I agree with that because, like, this is what, honestly, Star Trek was, uh, it, ever since we began this show, Star Trek, we, we said Star Trek was in a point where it was getting stagnant. Yeah. And at 53 people, million, that's no longer stagnant. That's no longer stagnant. And that opens doors and opportunities for now the franchise opens that we doors love. and helps panties drop. I mean, that's it, that those are panty dropping numbers. numbers. Exactly. And Ooh, then like 53 million <laughs> dropped <laughs> <my> panties. <laughs> but like literally everyone has wondered, is Star Trek going to die? And I'm obviously from right the from this vantage point, it's not going to die anytime yeah. soon, dude. They're in a good place. They're in a good place. They're in, they're even in a really good place to do a a restart of the franchise. Because looking at the look at it like this, Dave. Let's say there's not 53 million people, and CBS All Access has not released their numbers yet. Now, most streaming services do not release their their data for obvious reasons. However. Let's say they have 10 million subscribers and that's it. Or let's say they have three or four. And yes, one would think, well, that's how they're making their money. Yes, absolutely. And also they have some commercials that run through it as well. 
But look at the longevity of what $53 million would do for merchandising. Oh, absolutely. That's where they're going to make their money on the ancillary markets, the ancillary revenue streams. Oh, uh, discovery merchandise, discovery shirts, discovery clothing, discovery, you know, books. These, this is how they're going to make their money off this show and off the people pirating it. Yes. The 53 million people, or let's say 27 million people are pirating it. They're all, they're not going to go out there and buy stuff, but if you can get 25% of 53 million to buy merchandise, Again, that's a lot of dollars. That's so a lot this of is dollars. positive. This is actually a good thing. This is a very good thing for the series because now, but the big question that kind of ties into what me and you were alluding to in the very beginning of the show is like, how does this affect the movies? Because like, we all love the movies. I still like going to the movies and seeing a Star Trek film, but now are we going to, are, are they going to actually stop doing a Star Trek films now? Because what's the point? What would be the point? <laughs> yeah. I because don't think you, they're going to start doing, stop doing movies, but you don't you're, you're going to see gimmick gimmicks Gimmicks? like the Tarantino decision. Oh yeah. That's how they're going to, that's how they're going to win people over and making Star Trek relevance. They're going to continue to use the JJ Abrams and the Tarantinos. And that's a topic for another show. I don't have a problem with it. As long as it feels like Star Trek, you got to do what you got to do to keep your, your franchise your alive. franchise alive. So, you know what? On that note, Dave, we do need to go to a very quick break. But then when we get back, you and I are going to jump into the rest of this episode. We'll be right back. Double dumbass on you. Everything. The Rain Man Show. The Rain Man Show. The 27-year-old Natasha West flipped out at a Denny's restaurant after the waitress told her she couldn't share her $4 all-you-can-eat flapjacks with the other people at the table. Would it matter? Well, she can't share her all-you-can-eat meal. You'd have to buy a meal for everybody, I'm assuming. Police said West became irate and started swearing and swinging her nope. fists at the mm -mm. server. You don't tell me what to do. According to NBC <laughs> Chicago. I want my flapjacks. I'm going to eat my, my whole family to eat these flapjacks. Don't you tell me. <laughs> don't tell me what to do. <laughs> I'm going to eat these flapjacks with syrup. Just saying, when somebody's already... peach jam. And I'm going to get you little Tyrone right next to me. He's going to eat some flapjacks too because we're hungry. We're hungry. That's all you can eat. Yeah, it's all you can eat. It doesn't say all I can eat. It's all you can eat. <laughs> For more Rain Man, visit RainManShow.com. All right. Want more Star Trek from the holodeck? Go to patreon.com slash Digital to pledge. And when you pledge $5 or more a month, you gain access to hours of additional content. That's right, David. Did you know that? Oh, it is a very logical choice. Star Trek discussions up your ass. Well, not up your ass, but if you want, that's actually extra money. If that, you want. That, that has to be extra. Yeah. Extra, extra. Yeah. Uh, however, lots of additional discussions ranging from topics on Q, the Mirror Universe, Borg, and so much more. Same thing we do here, but more of it. Head over to patreon.com slash Digital to pledge. Start listening. Get some more Star Trek in your ear holes. Remember, live long and prosper.
It's Weird West Sunday. So the first thing I look at is, okay, if you're doing a Western and your inspiration is the surrealism of Sergio Leone, then you better have your panels drawn in such a way that it resembles the work of Leone. Mm-hmm. I mean, Sergio Leone was known during a time when anamorphic was being used. The comic book pages of Pretty Deadly is you saw those mimicking images. The, and, and I'm not talking just the wide screen style shots but also just the depth of field and making sure certain elements should stay in focus. Emma Rio studied and did her homework when she got down to doing this comic book. Yeah, she did a great job. I think going down the path and kind of creating their own their own lore. They created their own lore. Mm -hmm. I think it it leaves more room for mystery and more room for creativity and originality. Well, and like this one, I don't think I don't think they threw that so much into your face either. Yeah. You know, the Christianity or, or paganism or anything like that. It was if you if you read it like I kinda read it. Catch up on your favorite Weird West discussions from Mike and Clint every Sunday on Rain Man Channel 001. Listen from the Rain Man digital app or tune in. Just search RM Channel 001. Have you ever wanted something so bad that you do just about anything for it? Well, that's exactly how we feel about you. That's right. AdamandEve.com wants you so bad. We're giving you 10 free gifts with your first order. You heard me right. That's 10 free gifts to spice up your love life. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, an adventurous toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. That's 10 free gifts for you shy types who've never tried Adam and Eve before. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, a sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code DEAL30 at checkout and you'll get all 10 free gifts, including free shipping. That's offer code DEAL30. That's D-E-A-L-30 at adamandeve.com. Energize. All right, so today we're going to be breaking down Star Trek Discovery Season 1, Episode 13, What's Past is Prologue. All right, so Lorca... Lorca... Oh, my, my show notes disappeared. All right, Lorca plans to move forward with a coup against the Emperor, propelling Burnham to t- make a quick decision to save not only herself, but the USS Discovery. All right, so Dave, I'm hoping you did your homework this week. I did. Uh, let's just start with it. Let's start with that. As we have said last couple weeks, we wanted to always have at least that one portion of the show where we put a little emphasis on the academic merits of the show. Because there's a lot. There's a lot. And we could do another companion piece to this show just on the technical aspects, but we don't have time for that. So my cinematography shot of the week is uh, the one where Burnham finds Giorgio or Giorgio alone. And you have that table split into into halves by a long line. Uh, There's like a white light or some type of design on the table that keeps them separate. And now my interpretation of the framing was that you have two people from different worlds connected by destiny. The table symbolizing the joining or commonality 
and the line that separates the table into halves that signifies the differences in their ideology. I mean, it was amazing. I loved it. It was gorgeous. All right. What's yours? Mine is the uh, hallway scene where Georgiou gets led into the uh, trap by Lorca. Um, that scene right there was really good and really well done. And I think one of the things that really t- I took away from that was the one thing that everyone thinks it's, it's a very minute detail to the viewer, but if you know, filmmaking it is extremely hard to do this shot is the whole lights appearing in the darkness. That is incredibly difficult to pull off because even I, even I, as long as I've been a filmmaker, I've always wanted to do that shot where basically it's pitch black. The person comes in and all of a sudden specks of light just start showing up. And it, it, it boggles my mind that basically how difficult to get that shot to work because you either, you either lit it too bad. Uh, you either light it too much mm-hmm. or you don't light it enough. It's not, it's not as easy as one would think. It's not easy. Yeah. And like, I, I, I took that, I, I watched that scene and I'm like going, it kept reminding me that basically a lot of viewers kind of like, don't know how much work goes into setting up a shot like that. Yeah, it was good. And you're right about that shot. Not, I mean, yes, it's probably commonplace nowadays for those experienced cinematographers, but, dude, but that doesn't mean it doesn't take some effort to get it. I mean, with today's high def cameras, it is a bit easier to to uh, to get a scene exposed with um, with not a lot of light. However, in the days of film, you would have to have a very oh God, high it was film, so hard. film speed. So, I mean, and it isn't easy. You get you run the risk of having lots of grain. But chances are what they did was they they obviously lit it. You always light the scene, even if you want black, you light it in some way. It. And then you just crush the blacks in editing and you bring it down so that when you have your final render and it goes out to wherever your distro, you now have a shot that's that that looks exactly like like we saw. But and, you're right. It's, and, it's 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 pretty fantastic. And dude, every single time I do like a, a filmmaking seminar thing, someone brings up that question. How do I do a shot where in a darkened room? You light it. You light it. But, but, then, but there's then it's no, not lit. But there's no lights. I'm like, there's, no, no, there are. There are. Yeah, it's funny when people don't get that. But. Yeah, it's, well, it's, it's normies. Amazing. Normies. <laughs> normies. Well, they don't understand the fine art of filming. It sounds, it's normies. We sound like douches. All right, let's move past this. I don't mind. Lorca is dead. We find out how he arrived in the Prime Universe. It was similar to Kirk's. <laughs> yes, that was funny. That was actually two, made me chuckle. Yeah. Uh, due to a transporter accident and was not due to MU Stamets working on a way to get Lorca there for whatever reason. I know that's what I believe I kind of theorized that uh, Stamets, MU Stamets and Lorca were working, working together. together. Um, and it, those honestly, damn ion storms, dude, <laughs> ion storms everywhere. <laughs> I was OK with that aspect, <laughs> but I do got to be honest, Dave. And I was kind of hesitant on whether or not I should include that because, you know, this is a a fan show of sorts, but we also want to be fair and, and talk about the things that, uh, that, you know, the pros and cons. Yeah. But honestly, I, I feel like this might've been the show's first mistake. Lorca dying was not the problem though. No, it no. was that we didn't learn much about what drove him. And I said that last week. I said, all right, you know, whatever happens to Lork is fine. I'm okay 
with him being from the alternate universe this entire time. I thought the twist was cool, but let's not just make him a barbarian, you know, Yahoo, who has a very one dimensional goal and it's to conquer the emperor. And that's it. Give him some dynamics, give him some development and multiple layers. And I feel like they went the route of simplicity. Yeah. It was a one dimensional and flat. And I don't feel like they intended that to begin with because we had the entire season. We've had a Lorca that was multi-layered, a guy who was interesting. There was a certain amount of intrigue. There was intrigue due to the mysterious nature of who he is and what he's about. And, and we never learned very much about him other than the fact that he had his sights on the imperial seat and that's fine i i get it and that's goes that's the archetype of the of the terran empire yes they, they are one-dimensional they seem to have the drive you know power is their only drive and i can get behind that the star trek discovery has changed things and from what we usually expect i expect i expect more for them now because they've given us these characters right off the bat that are multi-layered and very intricate characters and, and the characterizations of them are very deep I feel like we were owed much more with Lorca than simply writing him off as a barbarian of sorts. Exactly. And and especially like my takeaway was it was was I disappointed with how they uh, finished up Lorca's story? Yes. I understand that basically since the very beginning, we've been we've been given these little tidbits of knowledge that Lorca. The thing that makes Lorca deep is his belief that destiny that uh, in destiny. And and basically there is no such thing as mere universes and, and multi-universes to him because it's all about destiny. Destiny will always converge. And I, I, the thing I was disappointed in was they hammered that home in so much this way or this way that it kind of made him more stereotypical. So by the end of it, it was kind of like, okay, that was Lorca as a whole. He was a stare. He, he was, the atypical Terran uh, officer that was looking to overthrow the emperor. And he believed that he was destined to do this. Okay. But man, I really was hoping they would continue him on. So, and I'll be honest, it's because I like Jason Isaac so much that he made the Lorca. So all right. Likable. Yes, Dave. And I agree with you, but don't, don't, don't um, discredit your thoughts on it because of, because of your like for Jason Isaacs, because you're right. Everything you said is right, but don't discredit the value of what you're saying and your opinion due to the fact that, Oh, it's just because I like Jason Isaacs. Maybe no, it's not because I do my best not to allow my own fan wants to interfere a discussion or a review. Yeah. That's not the way you do things when you discuss something like this type of show. We got to have uh, we got to be able to take a step back and look at it objectively. Yeah. And I'm with you, though, with Jason Isaacs. I love him as an actor. He's one of the biggest reasons why I was really enthusiastic about this show, despite the fact that we were getting Star Trek back. Um, and I know he was never intended to be the focus of the show. He was supporting cast. And I get that as well. And I'm OK. I'm OK with him dying. I feel, though, that there was a lot of setting him up in a certain way and then they didn't really fulfill it. And yes, we have two more episodes and maybe and we may learn more. We you don't know. know. The the thing is, too, is like, okay, my main question that I got out of this was, okay, this Lorca died, right? What happened to the other Lorca? Because there has to be the other Lorca. I, I feel like that's a question <laughs> for another time. Yeah. 
um, because I'm, I'm, I'm more, I'm less interested in the, in, in the prime Lorca at this point and more interested in the Lorca we've known Lorca. for the past, what, 13 episodes or so. I mean, we've never learned why he cared for Burnham. There was, yeah. uh, was it a mutual respect? Was it love? Was it sexual? Why did he care so much about Burnham? He, he says he saw something great in her and we get this idea of their intertwined destinies and, and they had a similar resolve but what was that resolve? It, they dumbed it down to taking over the throne or the imperial seat. Yeah. But they alluded to much more. Even to, even they went even as far as to have Burnham say at the end of the episode when she was trying to trick him, Lorca, she stated, I will stay here with you. You will have my mind. Nothing else. Nothing else. So are they trying to allude that they did have a non-platonic relationship, that there was some type of, you know, love there of some sorts, at least from Lorca's side. I mean, I, I felt that he cared about her as you go back and look at all the times he didn't want nothing happening to her. Uh, it was more than just needing her to get through the door. Yes. To go get after Giorgio. Cause even after he conquered her, he still wanted her to join him. So what was it? What was it? And then he dies and we don't learn what it was. We keep hearing Burnham is this, Burnham is that. But why? Why is she this? Why is she that? What makes her still unique? And I know the very beginning, they they kind of alluded to the fact that the, the reason why she's unique is the is the whole idea behind how she grew up. Yes, uh, a child of of two worlds, you know, being human but learning the Vulcan ideology, and that makes her kind of a unique asset on board a ship. Or in the case of Giorgio, makes her, you know, uh, <laughs> it's going to end in a tragic ending for Giorgio. Apparently, yeah. So I felt like they dropped the ball when it came to the final moments of Lorca's existence on the show. Yes, I feel I, like, I do agree with you. I feel that. like they really it really fell into a weird area. But it didn't. It didn't. It didn't ruin the episode, though. It I still. I it still didn't say ruin it. It didn't ruin it, Dave. But when you have a dynamic actor like Jason Isaacs, and you turn his character from a mysterious, a mysterious, multifaceted character into something so simplistic, it's just a bit disappointing. It's a. It's disappointing. Yeah. Um. I did like though, David. Trying to regain some positivity here, Dave. <laughs> Positive. Uh, I, I know. I, I did enjoy. I did like how the Star Trek writers called out the childish idealism <laughs> yes. of the Federation via Lorca because the idea of like a utopian socialist society has always seemed laughable to me. It just it's never going to happen. It would never happen. Or, or in a lot of ways, you know, we get this ultimate villain of sorts, the antagonist, the Borg, who think all one there's not a lot of free thought, but when you really look at what socialistic utopians are, uh, yeah, yeah, they're pretty much the Borg. Yeah, it's like one idea. The ideology is just across the board. Everyone feels the same way. There's no longer self-interest per se. So I kind of liked it. And, and I don't know if that was their intended purpose. You know, I feel possibly their intended purpose war was probably a little more politically charged, but still I felt like it said something bigger as well at the same time. Honestly, this is this is a big thing in Star Trek just recently that I've noticed in a lot of Star Trek forums and fan bases that uh, 
I listen to and and I I actually interact with one of the biggest things by far was the whole thing that a lot of older Star Trek fans like the idealism of Gene Roddenberry. Yeah, no, and don't get me wrong, David. I we we've talked about this in other shows. I like how it works yeah, within Star Trek how and how it is the the glue that keeps Star Trek together. I I I like that. But at the same time, when you look at it through realistic lenses, realistic lenses, exactly. You, you realize that it's very 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 unrealistic. Yeah, exactly. And that was the one thing that basically is interesting nowadays uh, because I pick up a lot of uh, philosophy, Star Trek philosophy books. And one of the things that is always a core thing is that debate of the the utopian society that Gene Roddenberry dreams of. Is it possible? And people say in realism, it doesn't. It can't exist. You'll never get somebody to think and feel and be okay with the same. No, we're never all going to be no. the same. And and the thing was, the th- reason why... Uh, I'll tell you what. I'm not going to ever fly in a fucking starship without getting paid. I'm <laughs> not getting paid, yeah. yeah. I'm not well, going to sacrifice myself just to go up into the stars. Yeah, I mean, well, Michael, we'll pay you through, you know, holodeck credits. We'll let you have fantasies in the holodeck. I'm like, okay, sign me up. <laughs> here's here's a, a couple of holodeck programs you've requested. Yes, um, to Paul. Um, a little bit of Captain Killy. <laughs> Perhaps that chick with the uh with the cyborg eye and the the shaved head and discovery. I might add her to my holodeck fantasy. <laughs> See, but like um, the the whole hey, thing hey, don't mess up my fantasy. Hold on, David. What are you doing? <laughs> seven of seven of nine. Deanna Troy. Guess what? Give me seven of nine, Deanna Troy to Paul, the chick with the shaved head. Uh, fuck. Throw in the robotic chick as well. <laughs> you know, and, and, and sign me up for a socialist society. I'm here. <laughs> I'm here. <laughs> but it's like the the thing that actually I read actually recently in in an actual book that was really interesting is the fact that what Gene Roddenberry really is after is almost kind of like Camelot. What do you look at the right. the Arthurian legends and yeah. stuff? It's Camelot, absolutely. And we all understand that Camelot cannot exist because we're human. I thought it did exist. That's not history. No, no, no. Because like, remember in the very I'm end, joking. Camelot fell. I'm joking. Dude. <laughs> exactly. All right. So <laughs> let's move on. <laughs> So the idea, getting back to this, the childish ideal idealism, um, the idea of the Federation and the ingredients that keep it together is unique. I, unique. I like that and the twines of destiny that help keep it together. So I do like that they're showing the differences between a universe that couldn't, that can't understand it and then a universe who can't understand you not being a part of it or not wanting yeah. it. So I like that. And I do like the idea that for the most part, this idealism is unique to this universe. Obviously, we have the split timeline now, the Kelvin timeline. However, I like the differences and showing that this is a unique idea, that the, all the right ingredients were, work, were there at the same time for the Federation to be a thing and Starfleet. Yes. I also like that it could possibly, and, and tell me if you didn't see the same thing. I... um. I also saw that there might have been a little bit of uh, with Lorca's final words about childish idealism. Was there possibly a little bit of foreshadowing of how weak the Federation becomes years later? That is a, that's an interesting point. Yeah, because did this utopian society truly work? When we saw the failure, when we, when we take into account the movie, uh, the final 
Next Generation film, Nemesis. Yeah. And how um, Patrick Stewart's um, double, I forgot the, Shinzon. Shinzon. When Shinzon used that, you know, the, the Dominion War, the Borg, everybody's come out the woodwork. Uh, you now are a fledgling government entity that no longer wields the power or the prestige that you once had. It, I felt like there might have been a little bit of foreshadowing there. There is. Of things to come with Lorca's little words. There, There is. When you take a look at it, I mean, especially like with a lot of Star Trek, it is it is really hard to get behind that child childlike fantasy of a great peaceful world. Yeah. All of us want it through realism. Uh, if you're being a realistic and a, a, and mature, right. when you think on a mature level, you realize that basically stuff like that is nice to idealize, but it can never come to fruition. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right. So standout moment for me this week was Saru. Oh yeah. I think he might've been my absolute favorite part. Uh, this is a character that I, this is something, this is, I was kind of alluding to this topic at the top of the show. This has been a character that has been a bit insecure at times. And to see his confidence build as the episodes go by, you know, the prey species becoming an alpha of sorts is, is a cool display of the flipping of fates kind of going against the, almost the polar opposite of what the MU universe is. And a part of me, again, feels like the writers should have allowed Saru to see it. Imagine how powerful that would have been for Saru. What a, a turning point for him. And it would, have, it would have helped this moment be even that more emotional. More powerful. Because when he took control of the crew and he became the captain and he was making the hard decisions and he just... And it was so, it, the writers did such a great job with that scene. It was, it was definitely the highlight for me. But imagine how much more impactful that would have been if Saru would have known what the Kelpians were, were in this universe, in the MU universe. I think it would have been even that much more impactful. Do you agree with that? No, I agree. I agree. that The, the reason it why it, it's so powerful for us is because we know what the Kelpians are yeah. in the mirror universe. I do really think that basically they should. That, that's why in a lot of ways, I understand it story-wise why Burnham didn't want to tell Saru. Yeah. I know. I understand I, from her standpoint, from her standpoint yeah. especially since, Hey, I just ate you. Oh, <laughs> oh she did. She picked him. <laughs> if you think about it, she picked him. Well, she ended up eating him. Wow. <laughs> so that is so sick. Yeah. It, it's it's pretty it's pretty bad. So I agree with you though that basically I wish Saru would have actually been more engaged in the mirror universe. To maybe that entire scene would have been more galvanizing. And this is where they could take those extra ten minutes that we were talking about last week, where we were hoping the Star Trek Discovery wouldn't necessarily stick to the forty-seven, forty-five minute format of regular television when there's no real commercials they have to worry about. Yeah. Give us those extra five to 10 minutes that you have extend your running time and give us a little bit more 
But I mean, that being said, I, I still I don't think it lost anything. No. Uh, the Saru moment was good. And as I was saying, it was a, a nice display of the flipping of fates and also a subtle way to support Burnham's rejection of her destiny as Lorca was using her, you know, as Lorca was using to kind of win her over. So I like that. If you want to, the thing, the thing too, that I really dug about the Saru moment, it really is, you know, we just talked about how that childlike fan, uh, fantasy of, uh, of Gene Roddenberry socialism and all that stuff. We were just talking about a second ago, Saru becoming a prey species from a prey species to a captain. That's that's pretty much there with Gene Roddenberry's, you know, that's what makes Star Trek feel good is like rising above all uh, doing something that basically we're not meant to do. And honestly, dude, that whole scene with Saru, I would put that up there as one of the greatest captain moments in Star Trek history. Wow. Look at you going out on a limb there. I will because I think Star Trek listeners and fans are going to pelt you with rocks because if you think about it limbs go through all the captains they're gonna, even they're gonna throw their gangly eye at you even even uh archer uh <laughs> when you Ooh, look at wait. all the captains what is their most defining moments you know and it's their way it's the way they interact with the crew it's their way they interact with their crew and rise above yeah i agree and like i wouldn't that, go as far as saying it's the greatest captain moment i don't think it's, the greatest it was captain, a great it's moment. one of the greatest moments because like I would actually put that up there in like moments of Picard and Kirk. I don't know. My favorite moment still with Kirk is I need my pain. I need my pain. I need oh my, my pain. God. Yeah. yeah. That was good. That was a really good, powerful scene. Yeah. All right. So let's move on into the MU Giorgio and Burnham and how they work together to get what they both want. I like this for a lot of reasons, uh, but it was a way for Burnham to have a chance at some type of redemption. That was what the writers were angling for, giving her that that bit of closure. And they have been giving her closure throughout the last, what, four or five episodes ever since we came back uh, from the midseason break. A little bit and a little bit. Yeah. And I feel like, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm happy that they didn't just give her closure in one episode that they're kind of it's it's an escalation. Yeah, it's it's not as finite each episode. There's a little bit that she gets with each passing moment. And this episode was just more of that. Uh, and her decision to save Giorgio rather than watching her die again in battle, I understand it. I mean, it, it was a great moment. The emotional catalyst and everything that followed, I think it made perfect sense. And it was poetically charged to evoke emotions. Yes. Uh, but there was one thing I I could understand. And it was... No, there was one thing I couldn't understand. Sorry, there's one thing that I couldn't understand, and it was um, her anger toward Lorca and all he's done to her. Burnham says, I can't forgive him, the manipulation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But by my count, Lorca has done nothing but help Burnham. He gave her reprieve from a life in prison. He, He taught her to be confident with herself. And that context is key. He was teaching her pretty solid ideology to take care of herself, to worry about herself. But in, in what means, what, though? What did he was, it, what, was it just for his end goal? I, I don't think it was. When you Again, I don't think we're ever going to get that answer now. But yeah. Lorca, to me, didn't seem as one-sided 
he seemed like he truly cared about Burnham. So when she said, oh, I, I could never forgive him for all he's done to me. He didn't do anything. You would be rotting in prison, Burnham. Uh, I, honestly, the way I, I the had way a I problem took- with it. I had a, I can't I cannot. Con- I understand her Federation ideals is what makes her make her decisions. I understand that. But the emotional anger she had, I don't know if I would be as upset because I would look at the bigger picture and say, hey, you saved me from prison. Mm-hmm. You have a good point, but however, now I'm going to do the flip side. Okay. For me, I understood her her anger towards that because at the end of the day, what it looks like, yeah, you're right. It, uh, um, Lorca might have been, there's more to Lorca than what we may never know now. However, if by looking at just as a person on the outside, Lorca manipulated everybody. Yeah. And for me, that's just basically, I understand that anger. You just got, you just got your emotions built up to believe in something. And suddenly the guy goes up. Oh, no, this has all been my plan. I don't know. And that would, that, I get, look, I can look understand. At his, that. Look at his final like goodbyes to the crew. He respected them. He told them that, Hey, I have a spot open for you, but I know none of you will accept it. I, yes, Lorca is a bad guy. Because he's from another universe. But it's that tough. It's that tough moral decision. And maybe you know? it's because I liked him a lot. Yes, he's a he's an indecent individual, but he's also a product of his environment. I feel like he's not as bad as they were trying to make him out to be. Yeah, because when you look at what he did, he did help the crew become stronger. No, he did. I, so I mean, I, if you look at it, uh, all those times we were always uh, we were. We were talking a lot about that time when Lorca literally banded the crew together yeah. in that one episode. I can't remember. And he literally like just picked up the crew and said, no, this is what we're going to do. We're going to do this as a team. Yeah. Now, and, now, Dave, if they do, if they do, if they find a way to connect him to the start of the Klingon war, then I understand the anger and I see where his manipulative, manipulative ways was hurtful. If, if he, was in some way responsible for the battle of the binary stars. He arranged for Burnham to be the one to make contact with the Klingon, the, 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 the light, the beacon, the ancient artifact that was floating in Federation space. You know what? I get it. But if they, if we don't have that connection, what was he really doing, but trying to get home? I agree. I agree with you. That's why I'm like going, the next two episodes are really key because like, they have to honestly the, the if they if they go that route and say that this whole time Lorca has manipulated everybody, it could be a little far fetched for me mm-hmm. if not done correctly. Yeah, if it's done correctly, sure, a plus. You yep. got to pass. The last two episodes matter, man. The last two episodes are like the most important because you have to put that nice cherry on top of everything of the story. So that we could actually look at the series as a whole and go, okay, this was well done. Because what, where do we go now? Meaning, yeah. okay, so we want to believe that, okay, so you want us to believe that Lorca is this ultra evil, right? Okay, but now you bring Giorgio into the Prime Universe. Now, is she going to stay? Is she going to be a part of this new thing? To, and she's just as bad yeah, as she's Lorca. just as evil. So if they expect us <laughs> to start liking her... 
what's the difference with Lorca? What what parallels or what are you trying to say by that? I, I feel like there if if that ends up being the case, I feel like there's a contradictory message. Yeah, because Lorca's bad, Borcher Joe is good. The the thing that I'm even trying though to though she ate a poor Kelpian. Yeah. And then on top of that, I'm like going, are they going to go the route that basically Georgiou has at least a code of honor? Because this past episode that they, they kind of hinted at that with all of her yeah. you know, statements that she does have her own personal code of honor. I'm not saying they can't do it. I'm saying they need to work towards it. I'm not saying we can't get on the side of Georgiou. I liked her, but if you expect us to root for her in some way, I think it will fail because... You start, you start going into this weird area of well, Lork is bad, but Georgiou's good. Well, where, when, when do you, where, where the lines are all blurred? So if they yeah. can kind of work us in that direction moving forward, that she does in fact have a, a certain code. Which yes, you're right, they have subtly established that, but I feel like they're they need to work their way a bit more to that. Yeah. Now the timeline. What's going to happen? Is this something <laughs> that can be made to work within? Star Trek canon. David, this area within the timeline was chosen due to the mystique. Not a lot is known about this specific time. So there is room to do what they wish for the most part. It it is a time that has been kind of left alone. And I'm not talking about the the ancillary media like books. I'm talking about actually established canon mediums, television movies. We don't know a whole lot. So they can a dress this as to being a a moment in, in, in history that actually happened in Star Trek canon, that this did in fact happen pre captain Kirk's five-year mission that the Federation was at the brink of destruction and the Klingon empire had taken over. And then at some point, they were able to push the Klingon Empire back. They can do that. Yes. But that's quite a feat in two episodes. The only, the, the only thing I took away from thinking about that, because it did dawn on me when, uh, when we got to the very end of the, of the episode, I was like thinking to myself, well, they still haven't explained in Star Trek, how is it that we developed the neutral zone? The neutral zone was never even brought up. And we know that the neutral zone was established during this period. So I'm looking at this as basically, okay, how, how far did the, it was like nine months. Yes. Nine months that they were, they yep. were, they got, they, they got uh, put forward in time. So nine months, the Klingons basically blitzkrieg the Federation. It is possible now the question becomes, does the Federation, is this where we get the neutral zone? Yeah. Or do they travel back in time to fix it? And I feel like if they do that, I mean, we're treading, uh, we're treading into tra- dangerous <laughs> I Star Trek travel. It's, it's a blight on Star Trek and a lot of Star Trek fans hate it because how many times are you going to go back in time, save those humpback whales? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they've done it so many times. I, I just don't want time travel to be a part of Star Trek anymore. <laughs> I don't either. Let's because leave it alone. I don't want to go around the sun. <laughs> <laughs> I 
we go around the sun again? I swear to God, if Vernon says, we must go around the sun, and hey, I'm going to go, nope. That, that's science. If you go around the sun, you are you go back in time. Back in time. <laughs> to the exact moment that you wanted to go. <laughs> and and that's, what, that's what I mean. It's like, uh, I don't want them to go back in time I'm like you. I mean, but that was the first thing that dawned on me. I'm like, like nine months passed. Yeah. Oh God, is like, is are they going? Is like, uh, is is are they going to actually think we can do? There be whales here, Captain. <laughs> there be whales here. All right, we need back in time. We need to wrap today's discussion, David. Give me your final thoughts in a nutshell, because we're over by about three minutes. So okay. go. Final thoughts on this episode. This episode was really good. Not a negative on the uh, on the series at all. Yeah, I honestly think that this was a solid uh, B episode. Yeah. It gets me really hyped for the last two episodes because now I thought they were going to carry the mirror universe to the very end. Yeah, so did I. So, what the heck is the last two episodes going to be all about if the mirror universe, which was being touted as like the 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 main thing of the entire series, okay, that's over with. We're now back in prime, and the Klingons have taken over two episodes that's a lot of storytelling to catch up on yep all right so what's your grade i gave it a b all right i give this episode a c plus it was a fun episode the usual greatness was in it great acting cinematography visual effects all of it is just top-notch work production design is just it blows it blows me away how on point the wardrobe the you know, the costuming production design and art department is week after week on this show i would love just because you know the money guy in me i would love to see the budget per episode and and where the money goes that's an episode we can do just on its own yeah. is the special effects and the costume it's just design. so much work it's just so fabulous and it. i love it it's just beautiful it's eye candy and it's it's fun to watch this show and it might have sounded dave that this was a negative discussion a bit and it and it wasn't meant to be it was meant to be to ask questions to pose questions now that we're coming close to the end uh and to be objective about our discussions so uh a c plus episode I like what they're doing. I like where they're going, but there are potential pitfalls ahead. <laughs> there is. There's whales. The whales actions. Yes. Yes, exactly. Uh, Spock's brother, for example. So stupid. <laughs> Those types of pitfalls. <laughs> All right. So action sequences. I've always liked the full effect. Phaser vapor, you know, vaporizing effect that they only have used a handful of times in Star Trek. It's always been a disturbing. It's always been disturbing imagery especially for a young kid to see someone scream and then be vaporized. I remember as a kid watching the original Star Trek, watching the Star Trek movies, there was something unsettling about the vape, about the full effect setting on a phaser when your body would be just vaporized. And, and I believe in some Star Trek movies, they get eaten from the inside and then it takes them out. That, like that the, was the thing about that hallway scene, dude. Yeah. Oh my God. And, and I like that they brought that back. And I know a lot of people scream violence, oh, violence, potty mouths in Star Trek discovery. It's horrible. But Star Trek's always had, they have always used their imagery wisely, and it oh, yeah. wasn't always fit for kids. As I said, some of the imagery in the movies were disturbing, especially when you had people's bellies being hollowed out by phaser fire, and then it just it vaporizes their internal organs and their body, and they're screaming. 
floating Klingon blood in Star Trek Six, just droplets. I mean, Star Trek violence of Star Trek is not new. Transporter accidents. Yeah. So I loved seeing the vapor, the vaporization effect as well. I thought it was fun, and they they it wasn't as disturbing, honestly, as this as the as the earlier iterations of Star Trek. Oh yeah. It, but it was still cool and it, it still, still had cool. a similar effect. So, all right, that concludes this week's discussion. I want to thank everybody for tuning in. If you ever miss any part of this broadcast, you can always find us on Stitcher and iTunes. Just search Star Trek from the holodeck. Also, don't forget you can download the Rain Man digital app. It's the, it's an app for the network and you can listen to all of our shows that we have on this network. Anywhere you want to go, you can also listen to this show live. You get push notifications sent to you when we're about to go live. Star Trek from the holodeck about to go live. And you can just push the little play button and listen to us from your app anywhere you're at. So I want to thank you, David. Thank you. And uh, thank you, everybody else. Yeah. (laughs) Live long and prosper. (laughs) I couldn't help but notice your pain. My pain. It runs deep. Share it with me. End simulation.